Our text for today comes from Exodus 20:16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. Well, I have a pen here. Not that I'm going to write during this message or anything, but I'll just keep it right there. All right. What's at stake when we lie? What's at stake when we lie? Is it just a matter of what we're lying about? So it, it, it matters about how big or how little the lie is, as that determines what's actually at stake when we lie. Is it about who we're lying to? Is that what makes a, what makes a lie good or bad? So if I lie to a judge, that's considered a big lie, right? That's called perjury. And if I lie to the neighbor boy about the fact that I'm out of popsicles, that's just a little lie that doesn't hurt anybody, right? Uh, I think most of us realize that when we lie, there is something at risk, right? Maybe that element of risk in a lie is the excitement that makes peop some people want to do it more and more. But when we think about how moral or immoral or how good or bad a lie is, we tend to think about how big the lie is, don't we? We tend to think about how many people it affects or what, what it is we're lying about, if that thing is important or unimportant. So the thinking that goes that big lies are morally wrong, right? And small lies are kind of morally nebulous, right? You see this reflected in the way that we speak, even. There are white lies, correct? And then there is full-scale deception. Alexi Santana was a college student at the University of Princeton, at Princeton University in the, in the late 80s. And Santana was a star on campus. He was a very popular student. Ba and part of this was based largely on his story, on his story. Uh, so Alexi grew up in uh, the desert in Utah, living almost exclusively outdoors for the entirety of his life. He had no formal education, but uh, also became a kind of competent distance runner running in the Mojave Desert. And when he got to Princeton, he, he uh, excelled. He received all straight A's in nearly every, uh, and uh, all the students really enjoyed his presence. The only problem was, is that that whole story about his life was a lie. Santana was not, in fact, a 19-year-old college student from Utah. He was a 31-year-old ex-con from California. Uh, who had a propensity for falsifying his own identity and stealing stuff, right? Now, that is a big lie and apparently a very old, uh, young-looking 31-year-old, right? I like to think that I could get away with that. <laughs> I'm always walking on the UNI campus going, please, somebody just think I'm a student. Please, somebody <laughs> just think I'm a student. Uh, but th the issue is that would be a big lie, right? That's a, that's a morally wrong thing to do. But it's... It's the little lies that we tend to be more accepting of, right? When we lie to inflate our own image, when we lie to avoid punishment or to gain a slight advantage over someone else. And I think the reason we split lying up into these types of categories, the, the reason that in our minds we, we categorize things as little lies or unimportant ones, things that can be glossed over, and then big lies that we should not do, is that we know deep down that we are all liars, right? And we all do it, that we have lied in the past, that we do lie in the present, and that in the future we will tell lies, correct? I was reading a National Geographic article this week in preparation for this message, and here's the way the author, whose name is below 
this slide, and I cannot pronounce, so you can read it for yourself. But this is what he says. Lying, it turns out, is something that most of us are very adept at. We lie with ease in ways big and small to strangers, co-workers, friends, and loved ones. Our capacity for dishonesty is, a, is as fundamental to us as our need to trust others, which ironically makes us terrible at detecting lies. Being deceitful is woven into our very fabric, so much so that it would be truthful to say that to lie is human. The same article goes on to talk about the development of lying in, in, in humans, saying that most of us develop the, the ability to lie, and anybody who has kids knows this, develops between the ages of two and five, right? It happens to all of us. And that unsurprisingly, humans lie the most between the ages of 13 and 17, uh, when we are establishing our own independence or trying to convince our dad that we did, in fact, clean our room. Uh, that one's for Brad over there. Uh, but if lying is such a natural part of human life and development, why does God command the people of Israel in the ninth commandment not to do it? Why does he do that? Or why does God split it? Or why doesn't he just split it into two categories like we do, right? Why doesn't he say, okay, here are the lies that this one's not really bad and these are the things you shouldn't do? This, but this isn't how the commandment is put, right? There's not a gradient between types of lies from, uh, from bad to good. There is just untruth. In this command, there is just false witness. And the reason for this is there is something very large at stake for God and for us in this prohibition against lying. When we lie, we risk more than simply the possibility of getting caught. And the key to understanding what is at stake is knowing why God was giving these laws in the first place. Why was God giving these laws in the first place? God is giving these commandments because he wants this people, this, uh, these descendants of Abraham, this, this people that he called out of Egypt, that he rescued from slavery, out from under the hand of Pharaoh. He wants this group of people to be his representatives in the world. He wants his people to look like him, to be his image bearers. He wants his people to look like him and to, and to represent what he is like to the world. And he wants them to be formed into a kind of redemptive community who will reflect God's character, his nature, his purpose, his plan out into the world. This is why he's giving these commandments. And in order to do that, he wants them to put away falsehood to be a people who speak truthfully. This is what he's asking. Because one of the fundamental aspects of God's character, as it is revealed to us in the scriptures, is that God does not, cannot, and has never lied. This is what it says in Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? I kind of think that that passage is beautiful. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is not human that he should lie. And if Israel is going to be his people in the world, if they're going to be his representatives, then they have to be a truthful people as well. They have to, they have to be a truthful people. But this idea that God wants a people who represent him in the world didn't actually just begin with Israel. This isn't the first time we pick up on this theme in the scriptures. From the very beginning of the story of the Bible, God is after this type of people. He's seeking a people who would represent him. 
In the creation narrative, if you've read it or if you're familiar with it, you s- we see God forming Adam and Eve, and what he does is he stan- stamps them, in a sense, with what, with what theologians often refer to as the imago Dei, which is just a fa- fancy Latin way of saying the image of God. And so what we see in God's interaction with Israel here, asking them to represent him, is just a furtherance of his plan that was already set in motion. God has always wanted a people who represent him in the world and who carry the stamp of his image. And so I asked you at the beginning, what's at stake when we lie? What's at stake when we lie? When, when we lie, we are risking more than simply the possibility of getting caught. Biblically, when we lie, we betray the image of God within us. When we lie, we betray the image of God within us. To lie, then, is to become less than what God has created us to be. To lie is to betray something of the created order, an order that God established to bring him glory and to represent him, but has been marred and distorted by our sin. And so people lie. And because of sin and the fall and just our general propensity to want to put our own interests first, we begin the process of grading out lies from worst to best to try to make ourselves feel better. And God, in his grace, gives us a commandment that calls us back to his original creative intention. Don't lie. Don't do it. It's not who you truly are. It's not who I created you to be. It's a beautiful act of grace, isn't it, that God gives us here in this commandment. But there's a problem, right? And I think you all know it. The problem is is that it doesn't work, (laughs) right? It doesn't work. And I can demonstrate this by by a simple show of hands. How many of you have lied in your life? Just raise your hand. This is easy. How many of you have lied in the past year? Richard, people have to raise their own hands. How many of you... How many of you have lied in the past six months, right? This is going to get way more uncomfortable, guys. Just get ready. How many of you have lied in the last two months? How many of you have lied in the last week? How many of you have lied today, right? It's going to get awkward, right? I told you, it was go- it was go- it's going to get awkward. This commandment doesn't work. None of us can seem to fulfill it, Right? Lying is so deeply ingrained in us that we might as well just create some guardrails and laws that curtail our lying, right? And get on with the business of being flawed human beings, right? This is what we should do. Well, not exactly. It's not necessarily the, the, the scriptural prescription for our problem, right? Because if God is giving Israel this commandment, he must be doing it for a reason. He must want something from his people. He must be doing it for a reason. Yeah, he must be doing it because being a truthful person is better than being a dishonest one, right? And to the extent that we are able to step more and more into a truthful place is the extent to which we can live freely. We can live with more freedom, as God actually designed us to live as a free people. But if you know the rest of the story of Israel, you know that they don't stop lying, right? They, they are as bad at this as we are. They continue to violate that and all the other commandments that we've covered up until this point until eventually Israel is a kind of pale reflection of all that God wanted them to be. But God does not give up on wanting 
his own moral image reflected in the hearts of humanity. This is not something that God is wanting to give up. He does not give up wanting to see people freed from the constraints of our lying ways. God does not give up on his desire to have a people set apart for his name who would represent his character in the world. These are things that God will never stop pursuing. And so what does the Father do? The Father sends Jesus. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that when he communicates the substance of the law, when he begins to talk about things like the Ten Commandments, and specifically this idea of not lying, it's done in a slightly different way. It's not, it's not laid out there as a proposition in the same way that the Ten Commandments were laid out there as, a, as like a set of rules to be followed. When the Scripture speaks about truth in the New Testament, they say things like this. And the Gospel of John is a great place to see this because in John, the word truth, or aletheia in Greek, is thematic. John uses this word in almost every story. You can track it if you're reading the Gospel of John all the way through. And he starts this in chapter 1 of his gospel. In verse 17, he says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, their, their very reality and substance through the person of Jesus Christ. And John continues to talk in this very strange way, not, not laying out a set of rules, not codifying a set of rules that people need to follow, but rather associating the idea of truth with a person, with Jesus. And we can track this idea all the way through the gospel. Like I said, in John 4, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. This, is, this very language is, is in the mouth of Jesus. And he says this, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For there, is, for there are all kinds of worshipers. These are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. Another prioritization of truth that Jesus identifies. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this about himself. I am the way, the truth. This is a familiar one for most of us. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at the end of John's gospel, and this is the one that's probably most compelling for me, uh, the one I like the most. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's standing before Pontius Pilate, who is the, Rome, the, the Jewish king, or not the king, but the Roman governor. And they are there in the middle of this conversation. And Pilate is asking Jesus questions. And Jesus says this in John 18, verses uh, 37 through 38. Jesus answered, You say that I am king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds, what is truth? And then he just walks away. And he just walks away from Jesus. You see, for John, the truth is no longer about conforming to external rules. The truth is summed up in a person, in Jesus. And the starting place for embracing the truth, the place that the, the New Testament prescribes that everyone who wants to walk and live a truthful life needs to start is by identifying this one truthful person, the truth bringer, the, the one who, I, who embodies truth in his very being, Jesus. Rather uh, than the starting point being uh, an external rule, rather the starting point is Jesus. In the gospel, not the gospel, but in, in a later book, 1 John 5, we, we read this. 
We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The truth, the ultimate reality about the world and the power to live in and under that ultimate reality is no longer simply defined by rules. It is not the following of rules that determines who the people of God is like it was in the Old Testament. It is not about external markers that determine this. Rather, because of Jesus, to be found in the truth is to know the person of Jesus. In short, Jesus is the truth. And to lie, to live a lie, to, to lie both with our actions and with our very life is, is antithetical to the nature and person of Jesus. They shall know the truth, and the truth will set them free. The key to living free from the encumberments of lying is to first be found in Christ, according to the Scriptures. So to be a person of truth, from the perspective of the Bible, is really to do two things, is really to do two things. To embrace truth as an orientation in one's life is really to do two things. First, you need to come to know the one who is truth. You need to come to know the one who is truth. Jesus said, I came to you that you might know the truth, right? You know, in the Jewish way of thinking, knowledge knowing something was not so much a, a proposition that was carried out in the head. Uh, since the Enlightenment, when many of us talk about how we know something, it's about head knowledge, right? Like, I know that Christopher Columbus came over in the year 16, 14, whatever. See, I don't know it. I know his name's Christopher Columbus, but I don't know what year he came. F Here, wait. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It, see, I know it. It just wasn't easily recallable. But, but to know something, we, we know it in our minds, right? This is the way we think of this word, to know something. I, I know my times tables. I know that the sky is blue. I know who the president is. I know, you know, what, how, how photosynthesis takes place, right? We, we know these things cognitively in our minds. But in the Jewish mind, this is, the, when you read the word knowing or understanding in the Old Testament, this wasn't the same way they thought about it. They actually understood the idea of knowing something as a far more intimate encounter. As a far more intimate encounter. The best way to talk about this is to look at the creation story of, again, where uh, God creates Adam and Eve, and it says that Adam lie with Eve and he knew her, right? That means just, there's no, that means they had marital relations, right? This is what it means. They, they had an intimate knowledge of one, of, uh, of one another. To know something in, in, the, in the Old Testament sense is to have intimate knowledge of that thing, to be in relationship. To, to know something is to, ha is to have had experienced it, to experienced it. Like, you can, you can know roughly how to build a house, right? I pour a foundation, and then I put the studs, and then I put on a roof and the sheeting, and then I shingle it, and then I side it, and somebody does electrical inside, and, and then the house is built, right? Like, I know how to do it, but I don't know how to do it, right? I don't know how to do it. I could tell you how to paint a, a picture, right? 
but I've never actually painted a portrait. I don't know how to do it in the real and true sense. I could tell you how to get from here to Nashville, right? But until I actually drive it, I don't really know, right? I don't really know. I could tell you all about people like uh, historical figures like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, but I, don't, I didn't know them. I didn't know them. And this idea of knowledge in, in the scriptures is this is the idea that's carried through when Paul says, my very goal in life, my very purpose is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To know Christ, to come to know the one that is truth, is to have an actual encounter with that person. To have an existential encounter with that being, which is Jesus. And very often, because of the ways in which we talk about knowledge as being an ascent to ideas in the West, when we talk about knowing something or believing something, we talk about it all in a kind of, in a headspace, right? That I, I, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, but do you know him? Do you know him? Have you experienced this reality in your life? Because in truth, right, most of us go throughout our day believing things that we don't really know, that we don't embody, that we don't feel in our bones, that we haven't had an existential encounter with. We don't know them. And the scriptures seem to be quite clear that it, to embrace the truth, one must know Christ in this way. One must have had, um, the only way I can sum it up, is a mystical encounter with the risen Christ. An encounter with Christ that cannot be explained away, right? An existential experience with Jesus. And this might sound strange, right? That we say these types of things. That it isn't just about what you believe, but rather it's about who you know that determines the trajectory of your life. But this is what the scriptures say. And this is what we all need. An actual encounter with the one who is truth. Because until we have that encounter with the one who is truth, we're never actually going to be able to embrace the truth that he came to embody and represent. Because if truth is a person, and the scriptures affirm that over and over and over again, we best get to know that person so that we can live truthful lives. So that's the first thing we need to do. We need to encounter the person of Jesus. And the second thing we need to do is to allow ourselves to be made new. Allow yourself to be made new. Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesians, in, which is a church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and this is what he says. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully, right, to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Paul seems to say here that there is a kind of progressive nature to being a truthful person. There's a progressive nature to being a truthful person because, as we've illustrated already, lying is a learned behavior, right? It's something that we inherently do. It's something that all human beings do. 
It's something we pick up, whether, whether by nature or whether it's in our DNA. But it needs to be unlearned. It needs to be unlearned. Actually, in the language of Paul, we actively need to put on a new self, a new attitude, if you will, a new mind, a new mindset. And Jesus makes all this possible. Jesus makes all of this possible. But there is also a volitional aspect to it, right? We must bring our will into line with the reality that has been made available to us in the person of Jesus. So in short, it takes a little bit of work to not lie, right? To, to embrace the truth, to be a person of honesty, to embrace the sacredness of truth. So first we must know Christ, and then we must live that out. We must practice it. And, uh, and in the language of Paul, again, this is to put on the new self and to put off falsehood. This is what he says to the Ephesians. You must put off falsehood to actively walk out the knowledge and love and truth of Jesus. In fact, in Paul's way of thinking, to put off falsehood is to be made new, is to live in, is to actually live into what we said earlier, our true selves. This is what Paul is saying. To be the imago Dei that we were created to be. Only it is not first and foremost about following the rules, but about knowing the truth and then allowing the knowledge of God that is experienced in the person of Jesus into the reality of our lives and allowing it to change us. And so practically, how do we do this? Practically, how, how do we do this? How do we practically put off falsehood? We must first confess, I would argue, we must first confess the, the fact that we lie, that our propensity for lying, we must make confession. Confess it. Confession is an active thing. It's not a passive thing, right? Confession is an active practice that we take on. In the same way that we talked about, one of the, one of the ways that we uh, stop from being a people who steal last week is to make restitution, right? There's, a, there's an active component to the way in which we form our heart in the likeness or in the, in the path or in the way of Jesus. We must actively confess before God and, I would argue, before other people. And here's the question. Do you have anyone in your life that you can confess your sins to? A person. Not that this person can give you absolution, but do you have a person who when you tell a big fib, right, a big fib, you can go to them and say, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I raised my hand in class and said that, because it's not true. Do you have anyone in your life that you can confess to? Because if you let that, because if we let the lies that we identify in our own heart go, if we don't confess them, we don't identify them, we don't, we don't uh, single them out, then we'll never actually be, be able to go about the process of rectifying that. We'll never move from being a person who tells more lies to a person who, who tells less, right? We must make confession. We must, we mu there's a practice, there's a prayer actually, it's called the prayer of examine. And Christians have done it for, for thousands of years. But what it is is a prayer that people pray at the end of the day, and they examine their day, right? You go through your day, right? You pray slowly throughout, and you just kind of prayerfully walk in your mind through your day. And you determine the things that you did well or did wrong, and you offer those things to God. The prayer of examine, the reason that the reason it was done is because there's this truth that we all kind of know, and this is even worse in our day, that we don't often know what we're doing, right? 
we're not often cognizant of, the, of what we're doing at any given moment and that we need a break at some point in our day to really look and examine our day and to see where we got overly angry, right? Where we, where we were uh, easily angered, where we lied in order to make ourselves look better, where we stole uh, from something or someone, you know, if you, if you took the Ken Griffey Jr. cards from Casey's without asking, right? You need to examine those things in order to determine whether you need to make confession. And then at, at the end of the prayer of confession, after, the, after you examine your day, you're able to confess those things to God, to identify the ways in which you, you fell short of the image that he has pl- implanted you with, right? And to then move forward. We all need to examine our hearts. The, this idea of both confession and examination, of, of being able to see the ways in which we have sinned and do sin and then confess those things both to God and to other people and then to move forward is not an easy thing. It's not easy. But it is what we need to do in order to become a more truthful people, in order to step into the freedom, the freedom that truth brings. There is a, I read also another article this week uh, in a, about a neuroscientists at the University of London in England, if you're wondering. Uh, and colleagues showed uh, in this study how the brain becomes inert, or you can look that word up, to the stress of emotion or emotional discomfort that happens when we lie. So your brain gets used to lying right? It becomes a nerd to it, making it easier to tell the next fib. In, in the MRI scans of participants, the team uh, focused on the amygdala, a region that is involved in the process of emotions. The researchers found that the amygdala's response to lies gets progressively weaker with each lie, even as the lie got bigger, got bigger, because we become what we practice, in the, in the very synapses of our brain, we become what we practice. And in order to become a person of truth, we have to practice truth. We have to practice it. And as a parent, I'm acutely aware of this reality, that I need to parent the practice of being truthful into my children. And so we say things to them like, uh, if you tell me the truth, you won't get in trouble or in as big of trouble, right? Because we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to parent the the desire for truth into our kids, but it's difficult. It's difficult, right? Because we are all untruthful. We are all saddled with this thing about lying, aren't we? And yet the practice of truthfulness, the the practice of putting on, in the language of Paul, the new self, the practice of putting off falsehood within the context of community, both confessing that sin to God and to others, makes us free. Have any of you ever been caught in a lie? Gosh, that's horrible, right? Have, have, any of you, have any of you ever told a lie and then knew in the future you were going to get caught in that lie? It's like a boa constrictor, right, wrapped around your torso, just like slowly, slowly constricting you, right? It's fear. It's anxiety-inducing. It's not by any stretch freeing. And yet Jesus comes on the scene embodying truth in his very being, proclaiming freedom from that ailment, freedom from that affliction. 
And what he asks of us is not that we would uh, automatically be done lying forever, right? What he asks of us is not just a sheer exercising of the will to like grit our teeth and, uh, and hammer down and not lie anymore and not steal anymore or any of those things. What he asks of us is that we first acknowledge and experience him, right? And then do the work of putting on the new self, of identifying who we are in Christ, of speaking truthfully about the own reality that lies within our heart, and truthfully to our neighbor. This is what God longs for us to do. And this is how we step into freedom. This is how we step into everything that God created us to be. Because to lie is to mar the image of God that we've been created to carry. And to walk in truthfulness is to walk in all that God has created us to be. You know, I've told this story before, but one of my friends who... uh, instructed me the best on this was a friend who was in recovery who he uh he was in aa from a young age and he was one of the most truthful people i ever met and the reason he was that way is because in or in the process of getting sober he kind of had to be relentless with the truth and he also uh was way more truthful than i was comfortable with like if i would tell him about something that somebody did in class the next day i would see him going to that person and being like nick said you <laughs> talk too much in class. And I'd be like, oh, geez, don't do it. Because <laughs> he was just relentless with the truth. He was relentless with it because he knew he needed, to, he needed to be relentless with the truth in order to be free. He needed to be relentless with the truth in order to be free. And so do we. And so do we. And so as we conclude this morning, I just want to pray for us for a moment before we go have lunch and get into all of the Harvest Fest, fe- harvest fest festivities. Wow, that was a mouthful. But before we get into all of that, I just want to pray for us. Because as, as you have all demonstrated to me, you're all horrible liars. <laughs> See, pastors have, we have plans. Uh, but I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us that first and foremost, that you would have, you would have an, a real and true encounter with the risen Lord. And that that encounter would uh, carry you through and allow you the, the ability, the capacity to put on the new self, to carry in your very being the goodness and grace of God, to see your sin for what it is, to see your lying for what it is, to confess those sins both to God and to someone else, and then to become every day progressively more free, more of who God created you to be. All right? I want to pray for us. So would you bow your heads? Father, we love you. And we ask that today you would help us to be a free people. You would ask us to be the people that you have created us to be. We ask, God, that if there's any falsehood in us, if there's any propensity for, telling the, for not telling the truth in our lives, we pray right now that you would root that out of our hearts, that you would help us to both identify that and to give it over to you, that we would see and know the goodness and grace that is available to us in the person of Jesus. And that because of an experience, an encounter with Christ, we would be able to walk forward in this life, not always with being completely and utterly truthful, not being perfect, but rather choosing daily to put on the new self, to to be cognizant of the ways in which Christ invites us into freedom. Would you give us the strength and the ability to do that? Father, I pray for anyone in this place who feels like lying is a problem for me. 
I do it a lot. It comes out of my mouth at times and in ways that I'm, I'm not even in control of. It just happens. I just, I just lie a lot. God, for that person, would you help them to find somebody to confess that sin to? Some, a safe person that they can, they can confess that sin to? And would you give them the capacity to walk forward in their life with less untruth and more truth? Jesus, we love you. And we ask that you would help us to love you more. We ask that you would help us to be a people of truth, that you would help us to be the people who would bear your image, that you would help us to be a people who would walk in freedom. We pray it all in that name, Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right.